0: Hello, and welcome to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today I'm excited to have Dr. Joe Hughes with me, who's one of our fantastic neuroanesthesiologists and has a special interest in postoperative visual loss after surgery, and he's coming on the show to talk about that today. Joe, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Jed. All right, so let's start by just talking about postoperative visual loss. Tell me what it is and, and kind of how we got interested in it.
1: We've always known that after cardiopulmonary bypass, people could wake up with unilateral visual loss. It's usually uh, complete, but could sometimes be the upper or lower visual field, and that was caused by atheromata or uh, clot going to the central retinal artery. But starting in about the 1990s, as spinal instrumentation became more complex and the cases became longer and bloodier, we began to see people waking up with bilateral visual loss that was permanent, and the ASA, as a result of that, decided to uh, form a visual loss registry starting in 1999, and this was headquartered at the University of Washington, Seattle, under the auspices of Fred Cheney, but Lori Lee, who's now at Vanderbilt, uh, was the one who headed that up, and they started collecting cases, and these were close-claim type cases from uh, the insurance companies. About 40% were submitted. Uh, so there was some selection bias, obviously, and some of them were submitted by third party. But that, be that as it may, by about 1996, we were able to get together 90, or they were able to get together 93 cases and start to analyze what was going on. And uh, there was another uh, study published in 2012 by the same group under Dr. Lee.
0: Great. So this is a huge issue, right? I mean, we're talking about potential permanent visual loss, uh, and these, uh, at least many of them, are in people with no prior visual problems whatsoever. Is that right?
1: Exactly. I had a partner in Texas, and uh, she was doing a case, and one of the other partners came in to offer her relief, and she thankfully said no, but her 50-year-old otherwise healthy patient woke up blind, and there's nothing you can do in most of these cases. Wow.
0: Okay. So let's talk about um, what we know so far. What are the different etiologies? What leads to, uh, or what can lead to postoperative visual loss in people after surgery?
1: So the different types of uh, post-op visual loss, starting from uh, anterior and working our way posterior, are uh, the central retinal artery thrum- or occlusion that I've mentioned, And then anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, which involves the area in and around the optic disc where the optic nerve enters the globe and the retina lies. And then posterior to that is posterior ischemic optic neuropathy. And then finally, any sort of damage to the uh, occipital lobes can cause uh, central blindness. So what we're primarily interested in today is differentiating between the first three and specifically, what we have always known is that pressure to the globe is bad. And what we had found with those spinal cases as they were analyzed. is about uh, somewhere in the vicinity of 11% were being caused by patients being laying prone on the horseshoe. And it's really hard to position that head in the horseshoe without getting one eye or the other pressed on. So by switching over to Mayfield... Uh, pins or tongs or using the T pillow that leaves the eyes free a lot of that was eliminated but we were still left with about 87% of those cases and that's the typically posterior ischemic optic neuropathy and go ahead
0: okay so let's just uh, am I correct that the when we're talking about the occipital lobes we're going to be talking mostly about a stroke Uh, infecting the occipital lobe of the brain? Yes, sir. Okay, and so that, uh, if that's going to happen and certainly could happen uh, postoperatively in the way that a stroke to any other part of the brain could happen, is going to uh, potentially affect um, your vision and potentially permanently uh, if there's no recovery from that stroke. Correct. Is there any increased risk of occipital lobe stroke uh, with spine surgery or is it the same as all other surgeries as far as you know?
1: Uh, As far as I know, that unless somebody has some issues uh, underlying vascular pathology, but that wouldn't put you at any other risk, I think, with respect to most spine surgeries for occipital lobe strokes. But it certainly can precipitate uh, problems with respect to embolic phenomena. But that's more, again, from the standpoint of uh, vascularly invasive things like cardiac surgery where you can get showering of emboli, emboli.
0: And those we see in various lobes of the brain. So uh, as you said, the three that uh, would be more specific here would be the first three that you mentioned, the central uh, retinal artery occlusion, the anterior or the posterior ischemic optic neuropathy. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And again, any or also anything that puts pressure in the... uh, chamber of the eye. can also push on the retina. So if you had an episode of acute angle glaucoma precipitated by a drug such as scopolamine, that could be a problem.
0: Okay, great. So you uh, mentioned the different frames. So the traditional frame that we uh, maybe are moving away from is the Wilson, is that right?
1: Yes, the Wilson frame uh, was used for a long time. And it's just that uh, solid piece you can do a little bit of adjusting, but not really very much compared to a Jackson table. So especially in people who have central obesity, um, everything is pushed together, increasing the intra-abdominal pressure, which transmits to increased intrathoracic and then increased jugular venous distension. And this is one of the mechanisms we will be talking about as uh, causing venous uh, congestion and almost a venous compartment syndrome that causes problems.
0: Okay. So we move away from the Wilson frame, ideally, and then you mentioned the Mayfield uh, pins or tongs. So tell me a little more about that. What's how is How does the Mayfield frame differ from the Wilson?
1: Well, the Mayfield is different in that uh, we're talking about, first of all, securing the head. And we want to avoid having anything like a horseshoe up. You know, the horseshoe's fine for supine cases. You can just lie on uh, the head on the horseshoe. But for prone cases, there's really uh, very hard to position the head on a horseshoe, such that you don't have both one or of the eyes being pushed on by an arm of the horseshoe. So you either you can get away from that by putting in the Mayfield pins or their sugar tongs or using our typical spinal uh, white and blue pillow that has a T cut out, the T for the eyes and the little uh, base of the T for the endotracheal tube, and all three of those. Uh, avoid putting any pressure on the eyes. So that avoids that anterior ischemic optic neuropathy.
0: Okay. So the pressure on the eyes from, let's say, a, a type of frame or a horseshoe, that is going to be put people at risk for the anterior ischemic optic neuropathy?
1: Well, the pressure on the eyes directly, but the Wilson frame actually does increased venous back pressure, and can contribute to posterior ischemic optic neuropathy. So I would make a differentiation there.
0: Got it. So that's key. So the uh, direct pressure on the eye from, let's say, a horseshoe uh, or a poorly positioned pillow uh, is going to put people at risk for anterior. Yes. But uh, increasing intra-abdominal pressure, which uh, causes, as you said, backup of venous pressure, can put people at risk for posterior ischemic optic neuropathy. Yes. All right. And then... uh, are you aware of any studies that have looked at uh, pins versus a Mayfield uh, frame? Is that something that is uh, is one better than the other, or we just know that moving away from a Wilson frame is a good thing?
1: Uh The Wilson frame, avoiding that for the longer spine cases, it's still used for shorter things like single-level discs. It's fine there, but they've gone to the Jackson tables there, and that helps decrease the incidence of posterior ischemic opnic neuropathy. Uh, The pins, whether they're pins or tongs or the pillow, are all good for decreasing the incidence of anterior ischemic opnic neuropathy. Uh, In addition, we want to avoid having the head down position because that increases venous pressure. Uh, things that increase oxygen to that area, either uh, transfusing a little more liberally in the longer, bloodier cases, uh, maintaining the mean arterial pressure 70 or above, and being willing to give colloids so that you don't let the on colloid-oncotic pressure decrease, have fluids leak out, and contribute to what I've referred to as this uh, venous stasis or compartment syndrome that can compress and compromise what is already kind of a marginal uh, supply of um, arterial blood to this area of posterior ischemic optic neuropathy behind the globe.
0: Okay, great. So I want to come back to that in one second, but one question that came up uh, that I think people may wonder, uh, we're all taught that succinylcholine can increase intraocular pressure uh, transiently. Is there any reason to think that succinylcholine can make this worse?
1: No. The sucks question was more with respect, as far as I'm uh, aware, to open globes and whether you're worried about extravasation of intraocular contents there. But uh, as far as I know, sucks can be used. That being said, I would say that most of us in the neuroanesthesia department, unless there's some specific indication for using sucks, are more likely to intubate using non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. But it doesn't have a, a... Bearing with respect to either anterior ischemic or posterior ischemic optic neuropathies.
0: Okay, great. So now uh, let's move on. I think the majority, tell me if I'm right, the majority of the cases that we're worried about or that we're going to try to prevent are going to be trying to prevent uh, the posterior ischemic optic neuropathy because the uh, direct globe compression, which is what's going to lead to the anterior, is something that we've, we're have pretty aware of and, and have uh, done a, a good deal to deal with at this point. Is that right?
1: Correct. That was about 11%. That's pretty much been addressed, and the remaining 87% is what we're worried about.
0: And that's the posterior? Yes, sir. Okay. So let's talk about the posterior. You had mentioned before some risk factors for posterior ischemic optic neuropathy. Why don't we just review those? What, are the, what do you think of as the major risk factors uh, for that?
1: So long and bloody cases in which the old thinking was that you did not transfuse until the end of the procedure because you were going to be bleeding out that blood again, letting the blood pressure go down because the surgeons liked the fact that the field was relatively dry if the pressure was low, not giving colloids because that wasn't standard of practice, letting the head be way down so that they had, uh, again, uh, less bloody field. The Wilson frame was just what was available then. There were fewer Jackson tables, so you had increased uh, venous back pressure, uh, not recognizing that by... Being not giving blood, not using colloids, you were forced to use vasopressors, which further compromised the blood supply to this area of concern. Uh, and then just not recognizing that people do have underlying uh, anatomical vascular risk factors and not understanding that this process is a permanent visual loss, so failing to warn people.
0: Great. I remember as a resident being told that limiting the crystalloid uh, that we used was uh, a good thing to try to prevent this, uh, and and the understanding was that it would reduce the swelling in the face and that that would somehow help. Do you uh, agree with that? Has that been shown?
1: The facial swelling is more of a cosmetic thing and really doesn't seem to, as far as we can tell, correlate as strongly with what's going on. behind the eye. I mean, it can to the extent that it's overall, you know, you're dumping in a lot of crystalloid and perhaps increasing visual as a marker. But what we're specifically worried about here is trying to shift the curve, so to speak, towards more blood and colloid away from crystalloid simply to keep fluids within the vascular tree to the extent we can and also to level the field so that You're not having gravity work against you as well.
0: Okay, great. So uh, we want to try to use colloids because they're going to support our blood pressure, uh, probably more so than because they're going to uh, lead to less swelling.
1: Right, but they're also going to, I mean, both blood and colloids will help bean I colloids will help that tissue or that um, colloid osmotic pressure, so that you're not having as much exudation of fluid across the uh, vasculature into the area surrounding the optic nerve.
0: Okay, great. Now uh, there are some studies that have elucidated some specific risk factors. Is that right? Um, yes. Tell me some some things that we've found in some of the studies that have been done.
1: So um, obesity the use of the Wilson frame we've talked about, being male, estrogen exerts a protective effect. Age is a factor. Over 50, we know, is a risk factor. Uh, Increased blood loss. So uh, 91% of the cases occurred with one liter of blood loss or more. Uh, Increased operative time was important, more than six hours. So if we can get the surgeons to a, uh, you know, segment these cases do them in different sessions it will help decrease that decrease the amount of blood loss being willing to maintain an arterial mean arterial pressure greater than 70 that was a a factor that was recognized as being problematic and uh trying as i said to avoid the use of vasopressors by favoring blood and colloid
0: okay great so uh you showed me some um some great graphs that suggested, as you say, that, uh, there were really quite impressive cutoffs at six hours where the incidence went way up. Uh, I believe there was also, uh, an impressive cutoff, uh, above age 50 where it went, went up significantly and then the estimated blood loss above one liter. Yes. So all of these were, were pretty impressive when you look at the increased incidence beyond those levels. Is there, does anyone have any thought as to why, um, uh, Why estrogen is protective? Why why is our our men? uh, Why is it that uh, that females have that protection from the estrogen? Uh, They obviously have more estrogen, but why is it protective? Does anybody know?
1: Uh, That really isn't known. Perhaps hormonal effects on the vasculature, but it's very. I mean, as I've alluded to, some of these mechanisms that we talk about are just being elucidated, and there's obviously effects of the estrogen in there but as to exactly how it operates that's not known
0: okay interesting so let's talk about um how when you are doing these cases let's say you've got a patient coming in for a you know what's scheduled to be a potentially a 10 hour spine case potential for a lot of blood loss maybe it's a redo and uh, what are you thinking what are you doing to try to prevent uh to protect your patient as much as possible and prevent this posterior ischemic optic optic neuropathy
1: So things that we consider, first of all, in consenting the patient, as I mentioned, that we do, in addition to the other things, like death, brain, image, and heart attack, mention that there can be visual loss and mention that these are rare but real complications, and we're going to do our best to avoid them. Uh, We're going to make sure that we have the Jackson table in the room and not a Wilson frame. We're going to make sure that the table does not get tilted down at all. We're going to have... uh, transexemic acid typically here if it's going to be a significantly bloody case, uh, although that can be sometimes hard to get hold of uh, through the pharmacy, uh, we are going to obviously have blood available and use it, not liberally, but use it uh, on an ongoing basis. What I don't want to have happen is to be playing catch-up and explain to the residents this is a dynamic process. We don't want to over-transfuse, but we certainly don't want to get behind the eight ball. So being willing to use blood and, as necessary, FFP and platelets, using CellSaver for sure, uh, being willing to uh, uh, use colloid, as I mentioned before, the 5% albumin and or 2% uh, normal saline, and uh, just maintaining the mean arterial pressure 70 or above, uh, can all be helpful.
0: Great. So uh, you brought up transfusion, and, and this is an interesting question. We know that EBL above one liter is uh, a risk factor, a significant risk factor for this happening. Does it matter or do we know if it matters whether you uh, transfuse or not? So in other words, is lowest hemoglobin uh, a risk factor or is it just total blood loss regardless of transfusion? You
1: know, one of the speculated, as I said, none of this is proven, but certainly people being more aggressive in their transfusing, not letting all the blood loss occur and then trying to catch up at the end. As we've seen the incidents go down by not taking that approach. So I think the answer to your question is yes, that... It, Letting the blood, the hemoglobin go to very low levels, and then trying to catch up at the end puts the eye at risk because you're getting uh, decreased oxygen carrying capacity. So less, even though you maintain the oxygen saturation, you're still getting less oxygen delivery to the uh, uh, optic nerve.
0: Okay, great. So this might be a case where we don't we don't uh, let the hemoglobin fall quite as low as we might in some other cases before we transfuse so what is your practice what when do you decide to start transfusing in these cases
1: uh, i would say that especially a lot of these patients are older so we have other comorbidities that we're concerned with such as the heart and the brain but on a- average you know trying to maintain say 8 you know i know that the uh, common thinking is down to 7 you know sometimes 9 but you know it's a dynamic, so I would like to sort of settle out at the end somewhere in the 8 to 9 range. And are you
0: sending uh, hemoglobin levels periodically to, to uh, yes. see where you're at? Okay. When exactly. what...
1: then we do the thromboelastograms, too, mm-hmm. and those longer, bloodier you know, thoracic cases or sacral cases where we anticipate that they can get into bleeding discrasures.
0: Okay, great. So uh, what you're looking for on those thromboelastograms uh, is not only... Uh, uh, whether you're um, having any kind of clotting dysfunction, but what specifically, right? So that will help you decide whether your patient might need FFP versus platelets and cryo, is that right? Yes. Okay. And, so, and then in terms of the hemoglobin, uh, as you're getting your hemoglobin levels back and you're sending these maybe every hour if it's a very bloody case. Right. Okay. And then you're going to uh, transfuse when your hemoglobin reaches uh, somewhere in the eight to nine range? If, I mean, it's been rapid, blood loss. Yeah.
1: I mean, we try to, to gauge. We don't start transfusing an adult team. Some of these cases with the TXA, we don't really need to give much for quite a while, but others are oozy. And it just depends on what the patient's been on. Some of these people have been on aspirin and can be problematic from that standpoint.
0: Great. Now, the TXA, you mentioned tranexamic acid. Uh, so just for folks out there who aren't familiar with it, this, like Amicar, is a antifibrinolytic. So this is going to prevent the breakdown of clot once it's formed. Is that right? And so prevent, yes. uh, help to attenuate some of the bleeding once the body has formed clot. Correct. Great. And the way on a thromboelastogram you might see the need for this would be if you start to have breakdown of your clot. In other words, that graph that, that widens uh, once the clot starts to form, if that starts to narrow again too soon, that would suggest fibrinolysis, and that might uh, encourage you to give, give if you haven't given some antifibrinolytic.
1: Exactly. And on the con- if you have TXA going, you'll actually see from the start, which we do in a lot of these cases, you'll actually see it widen out not a lot, but I mean, you'll know that it's working.
0: Great. All right. The other thing that was really key I want to emphasize that you mentioned is consent. So, you know, we know this is a problem. This is something that maybe we don't always mention in our consent of visual loss being something that is a risk factor. And certainly if you're looking at a long spine case in a prone position, uh, this seems like it's reasonable to make sure you're telling patients about this. Exactly.
1: Interestingly, it's actually printed in the paragraph on our written paragraph, but I would submit that most of us, don't say it and a lot of the patients don't read it so
0: sure okay good now uh, i want to back up a second i meant to ask you about obesity the do you have any feel for what the etiology of why obesity contributes to this is it like you mentioned with the wilson frame kind of overall increased uh, intra-abdominal pressure leading to uh, backup of venous pressure or is there something exactly
1: else? that's i think the main problem with obesity. And that's why the Jackson table is preferable because it gives you much uh, greater latitude to spread the supports and be able to let uh, the uh, central adiposity spread out over the table and hopefully keep your pressures down.
0: Great. The other thing you had mentioned is not keeping the head down. Obviously, head down is going to cause venous pooling in the head. Do you keep people uh, level or do you try to keep the head up?
1: Um, If you can do a little head-up, they're not going to let you do much, but they like it level because that helps them with their approach. But if either level or just a tad head-up would be good.
0: Okay. And now is there any difference in uh, what we see in terms of the risk of this uh, occurrence with the level of spine? And I don't mean how many levels. I mean if it's cervical versus uh, thoracic versus lumbar.
1: It's usually the uh, thoracic, lumbar, on into cervical. We rarely have a problem with this with the cervical, just the bones aren't as big. You don't get as much bleeding typically.
0: Got it. That's great. Thank you. So there are a couple other cases you had mentioned to me that were interesting of um, some things that maybe would be interesting to point out that can happen and lead to visual problems. If you want to uh, talk about, I think there was one case of a patient with uh, scopolamine patch.
1: Yes. This was a lady in her early 40s uh, who was having a gynecologic procedure who had always had postoperative. operative uh, nausea and vomiting, and so she received a scopolamine patch, and the hospital policy at this particular institution uh, was to remove the patch at the end of phase two. The nurse did not. The patient went home, and she did not have a history of glaucoma, and contrary to her instructions, when she took the patch off, she had it on her finger, rubbed her eye, and she developed acute angle glaucoma, so raised intraocular pressure. Uh, she was seen by the retinal surgeons, but they delayed putting a little laser hole to relieve the pressure. So she suffered some visual loss. Uh, they she sued the hospital, who settled and came back after anesthesia. But the, the experts ruled that uh, the drug was used appropriately. Uh, but I noticed that. I tend to be very, very careful with this. I see a lot of the patients in Weinberg in particular on the ERAS protocols who get these, and I always make sure you don't have any history of acute angle glaucoma A, and please, 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 whenever you take this off, typically it's the next day because the patch can last for up to 72 hours. Wash your fingers well. Don't rub it on your eye because you get even if you don't hang it, acute angle glaucoma, you get a widely dilated pupil that will persist for several hours. Uh, the other case that uh, all that, was a gentleman who presented perioperatively with diminished vision to the tune of 20 over 80. His pressures were 190 over 100, and he had uh, an ultrasound, shrunken kidneys, and on a phonoscopic exam, uh, flame hemorrhage and cotton wool, uh, macular edema were all present. So he was aggressively treated with antihypertensives which over the course of the next six weeks uh, brought his pressure down to a normal level and had marked improvement on his fundoscopic exam, and his uh, vision improved to 20 over 30. So everything that causes perioperative visual changes is not necessarily due to anterior-posterior ischemic optic neuropathy.
0: Great. Really important to keep in mind and to think about other etiologies. So, I want to just uh, sum up the the things that we've talked about, uh, and then I want you to. I think you have one other thing you wanted to bring up. Uh, So, we talked about the main uh, thing we worry about. Uh, being posterior ischemic optic neuropathy, and we spent a lot of time talking about risk factors and methods for preventing that. We talked about anterior ischemic optic neuropathy being mostly due to direct pressure on the globe, and we've done a lot to try to prevent that with uh, moving away from the Mayf- uh, moving away from the Wilson frame and just being more cognizant of it. So we've we've gotten rid of a lot of those problems. And then we talked about the uh, yes, it's the
1: moving. Towards the Mayfield and away from the Horseshoes. The the Wilson is with the posterior. Right. And the
0: Mayfield. Right. Perfect. Thank is, you. So so let's so let's re yeah anterior. Exactly. Let me restate that then. So the Wilson frame was the one that causing uh, increased abdominal pressure, leading to uh, higher risk for posterior ischemic optic neuropathy. Correct. Uh, but by moving away from the horseshoe and other things that press on the globe, we've dealt with on, uh, a lot of the anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. Yes. All right. We talked about the occipital lobe strokes uh, and those causing visual loss uh, from that uh, aspect. And then the one thing we we want to just let's just nail down the central retin- retinal artery occlusion Tell me what we what's going to lead us to that what causes that
1: so particularly for patients who are on cardiopulmonary bypass the positioning of the catheters can release showers of emboli and also just being on bypass can increase the possibility of uh, blood clots because of stimulating inflammatory response. So both blood clots and atherosclerotic emboli can plug up the central retinal artery and lead to either unilateral complete blindness or hemianopsia of the horizontal cuts, either upper or lower
0: in one eye. Great. All right. So those are our four uh, common etiologies, central, central retinal artery occlusion, anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, posterior ischemic optic neuropathy, and occipital lobe stroke. And of those four, if you're asked on, a, on an exam and in training exam or on boards, the most common after spine surgery, specifically the most common is going to be the posterior ischemic optic neuropathy uh, now. And Correct. then um, in terms of overall visual loss, the Not just after spine surgery, central retinal artery occlusion is a more significant factor, especially after bypass. Is that right?
1: Correct. Bypass, the central retinal artery is what you would expect, and the posterior ischemic optic neuropathy is what we worry about after uh, spine surgery, particularly prone spine surgery.
0: Great. So if people get a question that is asking specifically about a a prolonged spine surgery, postoperative visual loss, the most common reason for visual loss in that setting is going to be the posterior ischemic optic neuropathy. Yes, sir. Great. All right. And then, Joe, you had one other thing that you were going to mention.
1: So we've been talking about non-arteritic sources of blindness. The largest Category of blindness is actually giant cell arteritis, and this is something where you can impact and save someone's eye if you recognize it in a timely fashion. Uh, you can give massive doses of methylprednisolone and prevent the patient from going bilaterally blind. So, just another thing to keep in mind, and that's occurs with a greater frequency than everything else we've been talking about.
0: Great. So uh, am I right? This is not necessarily directly related to spine surgery, but this might be something you notice in someone in the hospital. Yes. And what would you look for? What would be important things to keep in mind that you might see in somebody?
1: Uh, uh, all the associated vasculitic etiologies, you know, somebody who has some sort of autoimmune type process and being able to order the necessary lab tests, recognize the uh, fundoscopic exam. You know, If you notice someone perioperatively or in the ICU who is having a problem and being ready to use the uh, steroid aggressively to bring that arteritic process under control before they lost the other eye.
0: Great. So I think the key here is keeping your differential broad. If you do see somebody postoperatively in the hospital who has some visual disturbance or visual loss, we don't want to just assume that this is from uh, intraoperative events. This could be something related to a vasculitis, something that you might be able to intervene on and make a big difference if you keep your differential broad. Yes. Great. Joe, anything we've missed?
1: No, I think that's it.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you very much.
0: All right. All right. That's it for now. Remember, you can go to the website at ACRAC.com, that's accra where you can leave comments on this episode. Tell us what you've seen in terms of post operative visual loss. What do you do to try to prevent it? Are there things we didn't mention that you think are important? Leave comments there so that everyone else can see them and can comment in return. You can also email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C.com. On the website, ACRAC.com, you can also sign up for our mailing list in the upper right-hand corner where you'll get notifications when new episodes come out and also any interesting materials that I may one day send around. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. For the ACRAC podcast and for Dr. Joe Hughes, I'm Jed Woolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued